Greetings, everybody. Welcome back to uh, another episode of Politics as Usual. Um, I always say it like that, by the way, because of Jay-Z song. I think this is the last episode I'm going to introduce that. Y'all should know that. Um, anyway, your host, Fred Curtis. Um, I guess I call myself a political uh, strategist and writer and, I don't know, maybe aspiring media mobile. We'll see how that goes. Um, special guest every time on this on this uh, show, because that's the impetus of it. Um, this week we have <clears throat> one of the uh, best young men I know, um, the wonderful, the immaculate, the majestic, this aspiring journalist, uh, Oliver Sinruder, uh, political organizer, all that good stuff. Oliver, did I gas you up enough in that intro? I think that'll, yeah, definitely. It's probably even more than, more than I need already. Hey, all right, good, good. You got to make sure, man. That's my job. I feel like it's my job, gas people up. Um, just to frame a few things before we get started. So um, Oliver and I had the pleasure, excuse me, of working together, I guess not last summer, but the summer before last. Time flies, and yet this year has been long at the same time. Um, with Organizing Core, uh, introduced that in an episode previously, um, but it was an extension of the Democratic National Committee, uh, basically a training program to you know help uh, recruit uh, local organizers uh, and train them to work on the general election, um, which is what Oliver did this past year and is still doing. Um, and I know there are a lot of thoughts there that we'll get into, but um, I'm cliche because I think you get a lot out of people when you ask this question. Um, and so Oliver, man, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Definitely. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a young young guy from the suburbs of Metro Atlanta, from Roswell, Georgia, and grew up here in a extremely kind of privileged, sheltered environment up in the suburbs. Um, very traditional life up here. Just trying to figure out where I fell into the world. You know, I was battling a lot of narratives that have been kind of set out for me, and trying to find my own path amidst that. Um, so definitely. Uh, was a journey throughout my, my upbringing through middle school, high school and everything, um, moving through the suburbs here in Roswell. Went to school um, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, so I was staying in the Southeast for my university experience. Um, had the privilege and fortune of good fortune of being able to travel um, a decent bit throughout those experiences and kind of separate myself a bit from the bubble that I'd grown up in, which um, I'm sure are some experiences we'll jump into later. But um, throughout those kind of those journeys, I was um, becoming increasingly involved politically. It was looking at largely through the lens of education. Uh, was kind of my background. I've been studying education, working a bit in education, and that is what drew me to organizing. Um, I eventually got into electoral organizing, which is, as you mentioned, where I uh, was extremely lucky uh, to meet the Fred Curtis. Um, very much changed my life, my trajectory. A big part of why I'm here where I'm at right now. And um, as you mentioned, you know, I, I got involved in electoral politics and I'm organizing in there still right now. Wasn't entirely sure if I'd still be here um, in December and January doing this work, but um, that is where I'm at. And um, I'm not entirely sure where we're going, but we'll we'll figure that out. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a bit about, about me. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to be on the pod. Been a big fan of what you got going here with Relentless Love and, and all the amazing content y'all are putting out. So just feel honored uh, to be to be a part of it. So thanks, man. Yeah, no, man, why well, I appreciate it. Um, and, you know, I, I probably can't put into words, you know, what what you and, you know, so many other folks I uh, had the pleasure of working with uh, the summer before. Uh, mean to me. I say it all the time. Still mean it. Professional honor of my life. Maybe I'll be president one day and that'll take it over. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't I don't really. Uh, foresee that happening. Uh, so much I want to sort of dive into here. Um, and I guess we'll start with where you're, you know, where you're at now. I totally understand there is, you know, there's a, there's a line to toe. Uh, and I, you know, I always, you know, sort of, um, I tried to, you know, obviously impart this in you all as well, right? Like, you know, yes, you can criticize your employer, but there's a certain limit to it while you're there. So I do want to, you know, name that, let you know, I, I definitely respect that. But um, in terms of, you know, just not just the general election, but we got two um, Senate seats that are open in Georgia at the time of this recording. Um, just what what has that experience been like? And and you know, sort of both positives and negatives. You know how how have things maybe changed from November third um, to now as we gear up for that special election uh, on January five? Definitely. Um, I think that 
unfortunately, this is not, you know, unique to one specific employer. And so I don't feel um, too out of line with much of my criticism towards the process itself. But starting first, like on a positive note, um, you know, at least if we're looking at the time period between November 3rd to now and how that kind of affects the electoral side of things heading into January 5th, um, it's been incredible just to see the country finally kind of put Georgia on its radar, put Southern politics on its radar in a way that has been on many, many, you know, activists, organizers, and, and folks from the South and, and outside of it on their agenda for a long time. But I think in terms of the national eye, uh, when you're looking at establishment politics, when you're looking at the general narrative in this country, um, has been extremely slow to catch up to what's been going on in Georgia for a long time, what's been going on in the South for a hell of a long time. Um, and so, you know, I guess on a positive note, it's been nice to see that finally, you know, right. see people being like, oh my God, like Georgia turned blue in the general. And everyone from Georgia being like, yeah, it's been blue, man. Like, right. it, 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 it's been blue. Um, like, it may be blue on the CNN map now, but, you know, it's been blue. Um, and so I think that's been really encouraging and just thinking about hopefully what that will mean in the future towards the way we approach Southern electoral politics, the way we give respect where it's due, where it's been earned for a long time um, to so many of the folks that paved the way for this to happen. Uh, to get to that national stage. Um, I think that's been a big positive. I think on a local front too, it's, it's been real cool since November 3rd, you know, I was out um, ballot curing and, and working through, you know, November 4th, 5th um, and in the subsequent days, just being out in the community doing a couple more, you know, logistical works around those, those um, ballots and everything. And just being in the community and seeing so many people um, just, excited in a way that I had never really seen before and feeling that, you know, maybe their vote does matter. You know, maybe this process isn't totally leaving them out to dry. I mean, it's still, obviously we have an endless amount of, uh, endless amount of work that still needs to be done and far from uh, where we need to be, but just seeing that hope and seeing so many people that again, have been having their votes suppressed, having their voices um, forcefully silenced for so long, uh, feel that, you know, a little bit of that voice got through. Um, has been really cool. Um, and I'm really optimistic and, and happy about that. And just the effect that it will have, like I said, throughout communities, um, in Georgia and in the South. And then, um, you know, the, the outpour of support in the across country in terms of folks phone banking into Georgia, texting into Georgia, you know, friends hitting you up from random States being like, Hey, I might come down and, and knock doors. That's been cool. Um, but I think, uh, on the flip side of the coin, you know, um, calling a spade a spade and being, being real with it too, from, you know, an elect, uh, from at least the work side and, and realizing how this all, um, how this all works in the sense that, you know, November 3rd comes, you know, again, we get this national spotlight, we get this, this hype, this media, and everyone all of a sudden knows the name, uh, of the state of Georgia. And with that comes everyone wanting to, you know, leave their, their two cents in, put their, their efforts in, which is fine. But I think it speaks to a larger issue within organizing, um, not just electoral, but when folks come in, you know, they see a cause, they see a movement really gaining traction, which is good. But with that comes that attention of folks that then think that they can bring their expertise uh -huh. um, and take over, you know, that, that movement, take over where this is going. Um, start guiding the ship in a way that um, I think is not always honoring, you know, the communities and the folks that got it to where it needs to be and will bring it to where it needs to go. Um, so I think that's been an interesting thing to observe just between November and, and heading um, into January now about, yeah, you know, like whose voices do we, do we put forward? Do we, do we strengthen? Do we embolden when we're given resource, when we're given opportunity um, and how much of that energy can be, um, intentionally or, or oftentimes just more subtly uh, co-opted by, um, you know, the forces of power that have been around for a long time and that are exist just as much in democratic electoral politics as they do in Republican electoral politics as they do elsewhere uh, in this country and, and elsewhere in the world. Um, so that's definitely, I guess, uh, I know it's relatively arbitrary and abstract, but um, at least, yeah, for now, I think I would just say that it has also been an, uh, an opportunity to really be evaluating, um, you know, where, where we place those resources and, and capacity when, when those fights begin to get won and, and how sustainable that is. 
um, if we're looking at, into trying to build a, a movement that lasts beyond January 5th. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> this work needs to be done long after January 5th. So I'm not sure if we're always thinking that far ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you put it that way. We're not always thinking that far ahead. And, and my goal is, even not just my goal, I, I think it's the goal of a lot of people to ensure that like our organizing spaces become things that are indefinite and, and long-term and not just things that last for four or five months. And then you recycle people and start the whole process of training and recruiting and all that other stuff. Mostly, you know, just from a fiscal standpoint, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense monetarily what we do, to be totally honest. Um, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> you mentioned a lot there I want to want to pull out. And I think it was the first part about finally, you know, like Southern politics and, and the South in general starting to get um, the due credit and, and sort of the attention from an organizing standpoint that it deserves because there's always been a lot of great work going on there. Um, you know, dating back to abolition to, you know, civil rights movements, so on and so forth. Um, you were one of the few white males we have within our organizing cohort. <clears throat> uh, we just don't have as many as I think we, we should in democratic politics, sort of different conversations, but I'll, I'll uh, leave that there. And it's for a variety of reasons. And I don't think that that is because there aren't a lot of folks like like you who want to get into it. Um, but Republicans have dominated support amongst white males since pretty much 1965. <laughs> um, you know, what, I guess, what made you want to dedicate to organizing on behalf of, of Democrats and other, you know, left-leaning causes? Was it Was it family? Was it, you know, upbringing was it experiences like i mean because statistically you know not that you should be working for donald trump but maybe mitt romney or john Kasich, which is you know fine so just curious you know what 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 led you to sort of this path with this party rather than something else yeah i, I think it's a really important question and one that i'm still you know unpacking and thinking through myself and probably always will be but you know I th it's funny that you mentioned that i remember um i've, I've knocked quite a lot of doors in my day and and knocking doors around here I, I remember i would uh have folks answer the door and be like no we're not voting republican like go away uh and oh, i'd be wow. like i'd be like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to see if you're willing to volunteer for you know a local democratic candidate uh for state house or, or what have you um so uh i think though that when i think about you know like how i got to the work and and how i'm continuing to hopefully move through the work is it's important to look at why you know white white men in particular have been in so deeply involved in the republican party but also just why um there are so few you know people from my background which i had mentioned earlier in um in equity and justice driven work um and i want to pause too real quick and just say that i'm well aware that there are quite a lot of people from my background in democratic politics and in politics at large um, but again, that being a politician working in politics, even democratic politics, um, does not mean that you are in just oriented work. And I think that, you know, when you look at, at least as I've moved through um, my own journey and looking back at how, you know, life is structured in, in such a way that makes it so that white men, um, particularly white men from even additional privilege of growing up in, a, in wealthy, communi wealthy communities like I did, um, and have are growing up in a world that very much um, maintains, you know, those, those narratives that keep folks doing the work that has built these power systems and built these structures. Um, and so that they are not even really aware of like how that work contributes and is essential to the maintenance of those power imbalances and of those um, inequities. And so I think when I look at like how I, I got here, um, it's definitely been uh, a journey um, in the sense that uh, going, like I was mentioning earlier, going throughout high school, you know, I always felt that internal disconnect of the community in terms of my uh, insular community and, and how I didn't feel like I aligned with it in terms of the Republican politics that were around me because that was in my house. Um, that was certainly in my, my schools and my communities that I was a part of, um, but not really knowing what to do about it. Um, wow. You know, again, just kind of feeling that I was just on this preset path. And I think there are a lot of folks from my background who feel that way. And then just kind of continue that that slow burn of just being in those spaces without really criticizing themselves, criticizing their role in that, um, and and thinking critically about what to do about it. 
So when I wrapped up high school, I was uh, spent some time uh, traveling and, and outside of my home context, which was really important for me. I uh, had ultimately, I'm only here because of the educators and the mentors that, that pushed me and um, really forced me to look at the bubble of life that I had come from and that I've been living in and, and think about what that bubble looks like in the grand scheme of, of the world that I'm living in truly. And, and if I feel that that's something that I'm okay with, that I'm comfortable with, and that, that that's where I want to be. Um, and yeah, that's been an ongoing process. You know, I, again, that year before heading into university was essential for me. Um, my time at university, you know, I, I think for me, it wasn't one pivotal moment because even after that, that long period of, of learning and unlearning, um, still went through university uh, the first couple of years, at least, with an intention of just taking a classic kind of uh, white collar, white dude job um, and thought that maybe like, the you know, the political involvement and, and the engagement with my community would kind of be stuff on the side, you know, which I think is, again, a very common narrative for people from my background. It's like, OK, I'll do my nine to five. That is uh, quite literally upholding and, and strengthening these systems of oppression. But I'm a you know volunteer for maybe an hour a week or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll yeah. do this and kind of scratch that itch, feel good about myself, post it on social media. Um, <laughs> and, and so that was, that was still very much me. So, you know, I'm, we're laughing about it. I'm laughing at myself. And um, so then I, I, anyways, uh, a little further into my university experience, I was uh, able to study human rights and social movements. Um, also was traveling throughout the global South for that um, with our kind of pedagogy rooted though in the American South and movement building here. And so just being able to draw the connections between these, these coalitions and the solidarity that was going on between all these different activist communities really began to help me connect the dots with like, okay, how do I align, you know, my, my larger way of living, you know, both my professional, my personal, and just my emotional and mental well-being with, um, you know, these, these causes, these systems of work that I align with now. And so um, it wasn't until then that I really decided I'd already like at, at that point, I'd already signed like an offer to go work at some multi you know, bajillionaire uh, consulting company. And that was still my life. And I it wasn't until then that I decided to kind of finally wake up a bit. Um, and that was pretty much right before I ended up getting to meet you and um, starting kind of a, a late start in that journey, but um, a, a journey that's been extremely rewarding ever since and will continue to be. So that's kind of, I know I rambled around a little bit there, but that's how I ended up, um, you know, getting my feet wet in electoral organizing, which then has quickly escalated to, you know, more community driven organizing um, and trying to um, extend beyond just the electoral side of things, which I have uh, my, my own issues with. And um, that's kind of where I'm at now and, and hopefully will be again, a huge part of uh, where I continue to be. And so, uh, but yeah, I think again, going back to, uh, why folks from my background uh, rarely end up in this work. I think it's very intentionally, um, you know, built mm -hmm. that way to, to maintain itself. And, and few folks are fortunate enough to have the mentors, the educators, and the, you know, the environments that, uh, you know, really helped me along the way. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but. Oh yeah. Right. More, more than answers it. And don't, don't be afraid to ramble. There's a lot of, uh, good, good, good education and tidbits within there. Um, one of the things I want to highlight is you, you mentioned obviously a lot of your travels and you know, sort of how a lot of that was, was um, looked at through the lens of the American South. And in some ways, you know, you mentioned uh, growing up in the suburbs of Metro Atlanta, going to college in, in Nashville. Um, one of the things I have most pride in is actually being from the South, um, you know, and just, some of the culture and, and the just things I've learned as, you know, by way of um, being a Southerner. I guess I would ask you particularly because you've got some, some valuable experience within the lens of international travel and movement and, you know, organization building. Are there any Southern specific sort of cultural organizing trends that you sort of saw bear out? Um, in your international travels? And if so, like, you know, just what were some of those and, and what did you learn from, from seeing those things outside of not just America, but the American South? Definitely. Um, and I think that, yeah, that, that was just, that has been such an essential part of giving uh, more, more context and, and encouragement to my, my work in a local context. Um, because 
uh, particularly as I was mentioning when I was uh, beginning a lot of those studies in, in human rights and, and international social movements, um, having the, the, it was a, a bit of a formalized program and it intentionally began in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we went to the Highlander Center in Tennessee, which is this amazing place of activism and education um, and, and solidarity movements. And so, um, you know, really being rooted, uh, having that program rooted there, which I was from the American South, um, but a lot of folks on this program were students from other parts of the world, um, other parts of the country. And the choice to, again, have this entire program around social movement, around uh, justice work rooted in the American South before then um, traveling across a variety of spots in the global South was really foundational to recognizing a lot of these, these trends and, and cultural you know, uh, values that were showing up in, in different justice-oriented work elsewhere. I think one thing that really stood out to me, um, you know, growing up in the suburbs of the South, you know, and particularly the white suburbs of the South, you know, for me, my religious community and my faith community uh, looked very different than, mm-hmm. you know, the, the legacy of, of faith-based communities and activism in the South. And I think for, I think it's really common for some folks uh, to kind of take this, uh, especially in left leftist work and left oriented work, um, a really critical view towards religion, right? And you kind of write off religion and like, oh, you know, like I, um, maybe I'm spiritual, maybe I'm a faith-based person, but organized religion, you know, that's the worst. You know, I think that's a really common thing. And I was at the time really kind of grappling with that because I had seen a lot of good and a lot of bad done by, in, in the name of religion. And one thing that was really powerful to see was this, uh, was the concept of liberation theology um, and the reinterpretation of, of text, of scripture, of religion in a way that, at least in my opinion, um, and in the, the, the voices of the educators that were sharing information with me, just really brings back the, the true purpose of, of religion and of spiritual work, which is liberation, right, and, mm-hmm. and freedom and, and an equity equity-based perspective in everything that goes on through religion. And so having that, you know, being done in the South um, and then seeing it being done elsewhere in the world through a variety of different religions, potentially and different scriptures and whatnot, but so many of those activists still referencing the American South and so much of that work that had been kind of pioneered in the American South was really, really cool um, just to see how faith and, and religion can be such an essential component of, of really radical work being done um, all across the world um, with reference to the American South. Um, also, while we were traveling um, in some of these spo- uh, spots, I had a, a real good friend of mine who was centering her research on um, how hip hop and rap um, from mm. the American South was such a key component to radical movement. And um, it was just insanely cool to be kind of a fly on the wall with her as she would go meet up with these, you know, spoken word poets, these rappers, these, um, you know, people doing freestyle on the streets in languages sometimes that we didn't even understand, you know, we, yeah. we would have like, an interpreter with us and whatnot and just be hanging out with people and seeing again, like just the impact that, um, that rap and that hip hop and music in general, um, spoken word poetry was having all across the world. And again, just having so much of these, um, these trends be rooted in the American South and these activists being like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, we know it's good. We know what's going on over there. We think it's the coolest thing. It's given us a lot of uh, cool, you know, perspective and, and added value to our work. Um, and a lot of that dialogue going both ways, you know, a lot of those communities being connected with one another was super cool. Um, and so I think that those are a few things that were really standing out to me and just realizing again, how much true like solidarity and coalition was, was in all that work and made it so I was like, oh wait, this isn't just like a fight or a struggle going on in Nepal. And this isn't just a fight or struggle going on with the Chileans, like, you know, fighting for economic equity and uh, fighting against the privatization of their water. It's like, no, like all this is such deeply common threads. Um, And and some of those, you know, whether it was liberation theology, hip hop or whatever else um, that kind of made those ties more clear. Um, But it was was definitely a common common trend throughout it but mind you too i, I want to be again be real with it like that that's going on in a lot of these you know organizing communities and whatnot but you know also that the surface level kind of stereotypes of the u.s south are still very much 
real, you know, in all different parts of the world. And also if you're just traveling around the U S like we were kind of mentioning earlier um, and how deeply misunderstood like activist work and, and in general, like the politics of the South are understood elsewhere. Um, and that that's very intentionally created. You guys have already talked about this on this show quite a lot um, with, you know, how, you know, you got Dr. Martin Luther King, who's, you know, just a nice little bow and rap figure who's, you know, nice pacifist and, you know, did this one thing and we're done with this in the past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and how all these narratives are, are really intentionally built up. So I know that's a whole nother, another conversation that y'all, like I said, touched on a decent bit already on this pod. So, um, but yeah, that all obviously still very much exists, but it was really cool to see um, all those other uh, through lines, you know, between the work and other places and, and here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a conversation that never gets old, uh, just, you know, how we try to, um, I guess, paint history and historical figures in one light and ignore everything else. Um, Martin Luther King can be a whole series and how we've done that, and maybe I'll have time to to, to get to it. Um, so much to sort of pull out there, so many insights. I think the biggest thing I would say, actually, Oliver wrote a book, y'all, if you're watching this on YouTube or whatever, Bridging the Gap. Um <laughs> incorporating travel into education work in a meaningful life. So go get that on Amazon. Um, but you recently wrote a book, obviously, where you focus on travel um, and sort of how it plays, you know, an instrumental role um, in personal and, and sort of professional development. And, you know, this is actually one of the things that a lot of, you know, quote unquote, prominent um, voices and movements um, have in common, you know, like um, people forget, you know, Dr. King, you know, went to, school in Pennsylvania and traveled to a host of international places. We can go down the list with a lot of different organizers. Um, you know, Obama was, you know, so on and so forth. Won't get into the details, but um, I guess within the context of organizing, you know, why do you think travel can be such, uh, such an in- instrumental um, thing to do or, or process or thing to experience when it comes to coalition building, community building, so on and so forth. Why do you think that is? Definitely. Um, I think that for me too, what I would say on, on travel is that at least I feel that travel is very loosely defined. You know, I think a lot of people think of travel as like, you know, Oh, you know, hopping on a flight and going on vacation somewhere. And it's, that's, that's what travel is. And that's obviously can be travel, I suppose. But to me, it's more what, what constitutes travel is, is any sort of experience or even just an encounter that brings you out of the immediate reality that you're in and kind of lets you look at that from 10 steps back Mm. and just learn more about it from a different lens. And that can be thousands of miles. That can be thousands of feet, you know, into an environment that you otherwise would not have been in um, and that you intentionally place yourself in, um, you know? And so I think in the, the context of organizing that process of, you know, I think (laughs) I know, uh, obviously on this podcast and, and in relentless love, so many folks are rooted in organizing and rooted in community organizing. So I certainly think that people can relate to feeling just so busy, so present, so caught up in what you are, what you're doing, what the day-to-day looks like um, that there's, you know, there's always work to be done, which is true. Um, but I think that process of, again, stepping out of the immediacy of the work to learn from the way other communities are, are fighting similar fights. And that, again, like this struggle um, is going on so many places, right? It's not mm. uh, just whatever it looks like in the localized context that, that we may be in at the time. Um, and so, yeah, like being in, in those different spaces and learning how different organizers are using different strategies uh, to combat very similar systems of oppression, but maybe through different ways, different cultural contexts, um, and, and different ways of building coalition and solidarity is really valuable. I think for organizers who, you know, want to find ways to, again, when you need that mental health of, of feeling that like the world is, there's so many other people having this fight, um, Mm -hmm. having, you know, good days, bad days, um, having different strategies that you otherwise might not have thought of and that you can learn a lot from that you can share, uh, with them as well, you know, what your struggles look like and what your, what your victories are looking like, um, and it's just that I think it's really um, brings a lot of hope and brings a lot of connection. And again, that, that solidarity of feeling like you've got support and that you're supporting people um, outside of, of your localized context. You know, I think that kind of classic cliche, right, of uh, 
think globally, act locally or whatever. And I think that's, you know, yeah. as <laughs> it's very cliche, -y, but I do think that, that having um, that, that additional um, connection with, with work and movements being done elsewhere is, is super valuable. And the best way uh, to do it is to go get involved with that work um, and to make those relationships, make those friends and, um, you know, uh, have it be something more than just words on a page. Um, and yeah, so I think that that within the organizing context is a huge value of travel um, and can really, really bring a lot of, um, yeah, subsequent value to, to the way the, the day-to-day -day looks like in the organizing world. Yeah. I love the uh, explicit rejection of the rigid definition of travel. Um, and then now there are a lot of ways to uh, incorporate that uh, into one's life. Um, what I've learned in sort of being a writer and writing two what I think are very mediocre books is you learn a lot more so as a writer than, than I think what you intend on conveying to others. Um, what did you learn personally while, while writing the book? I'm definitely going to flip this question back on you. Um, but I guess for me, uh, I feel like, I, yeah, I definitely learned, learned a hell of a lot uh, in the process. And I think one, one just overarching thing that I learned is just to be asking people for their stories, you know, mm. be asking and listening as much as possible, um, for these stories, because I was never, uh, it never ceased to amaze me how much people are sitting on, you know, how much, yeah value and story and and just incredible yeah things you can hear from folks when you just ask and you just take the time to listen really without much of a a goal you know when i began writing the book i really didn't have much of an idea of what it was going to be or what the purpose of it was was i just wanted an excuse to reach out to people that had looked like they had been through formative experiences and talk about that and yeah i just think that that has really given me a lot of encouragement in my organizing to similarly, again, just like hear people's stories and, and have that rooted in that relational kind of organizing and, and uh, always be intentional about seeking that out. So I, I feel like I really continue to try to incorporate that into what I do. And another thing, I feel like the second thing I'd say is um, just a tremendous amount of respect for creators, um, for artists, for musicians, for writers, for poets, um, who put their work out there. You know, I think like for me, like I'm incredibly just anxious and self-conscious about anything I'm putting out. Um, and through the process of, of writing, I just remember being incredibly hard on myself, the classic kind of perfectionist tendencies yeah. of realizing though that it's not that I need more time to make this perfect. And if I'd only had more time to write this sentence or this chapter, it's like, no, it's, it's not perfect. And yeah. it's not perfect because I'm not perfect. Mm. And there are a lot of very, you know, it's, I need to stop worrying about what, whether people will critique this work because they will, and they should, and it has flaws. And I have quite a lot of flaws. Um, and I was just putting out, you know, a relatively uh, general book about uh, travel. And, and again, wasn't really pouring, uh, trying to, but I wasn't pouring nearly as much of my emotion and myself into my work as so many creators and artists and, and poets do. Um, and so I feel like I just, yeah, continue to, to learn more and more respect, um, for that kind of cathartic process of content creation and, and sharing it and how much value can be found, um, if you're being honest in that process, which um, is why, you know, I, I think as I was writing and I was going through that process, some of the things that you shared with me about your own process of, of writing and, and, you know, now having written multiple books and put out so much content, um, I'd be really curious and which anyone who doesn't already have these books, make sure you go buy them particularly <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Uh, thanks for asking. It's just an incredibly beautiful piece of work that is just so raw with emotion, but also so wonderfully like refined and the, the prose and the, the music incorporated in there. It's just, I was amazed, um, with, with that piece, man. So I really, really appreciate you putting that out there. Anyone who doesn't have it already, pause the podcast right now. <laughs> go, to your, go to the cart, add it, <laughs> go grab that for sure. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about too, about you know what you feel like you've learned in the process now of, of being putting out amazing content for a very long time. Yeah, well, thank thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to be one of those people that's like, oh, you know, I don't deserve that. Every time somebody tells you your art is good, artists appreciate it. So uh, thank you. Um, 
I think the biggest thing I've learned is that one, there are definitely still insecurities in me. Um, you know, every time I put out anything new, but especially books, it's like, there's always that little voice in my head or feeling of like, this is inadequate. This isn't good enough. Maybe you shouldn't have done this. Maybe you shouldn't have put this out. Um, and I, I think honestly, writing the the poetry book in sort of the last, honestly, three or four weeks or so, that feeling's been been pretty tangible. Um, you know, f- for a variety of reasons. One of them, uh, one of them is sort of practical. Couldn't quite afford an editor, so you know, you edit everything yourself. And I look at it, and I'm like, man, first ten pages, I catch three errors. You know, the perfectionist in me is mad. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, I read it. I read it. Didn't really. I didn't catch anything. <laughs> So. Uh, no, I, I, I appreciate that. It wasn't too bad. Um, but then the other one is, you know, within within the book, there's it goes back, honestly, to a lot of stuff we talked about as far as just, you know, religion and reconciling some of those things is, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to tone a lot of things down or, or take it out or maybe not be as raw. And, you know, one of them to be, you know, totally honest is, um, you know, the, the book is relatively sensual and, and I think I need it to tell those stories in their most raw form because one there are so many people who identify and struggle with that in some capacity um but two you know i think growing up in the south particularly i mean it could be other places but just from a southern perspective is so much of what you're taught growing up suppresses such a huge part of what we know is just a part of the human experience especially as you're growing from childhood to teenagers to adolescence to so on and so forth. Um, and, and the ways in which we refuse to create space for even young adults to explore that, I think you know, it's troublesome. I think it's dangerous in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so, you know, that was one of the main reasons I felt like those stories needed to be told in their most pure form. But to wrap it all up, I think the thing I learned the most um, in writing that is that uh, tr- trauma is uh, is more lasting than we like to admit. <laughs> um, on the flip side of that, though, I think what it made me do is really reconcile a lot of things I had never reconciled, confront them <clears throat> in ways I had never confronted them, and attempt to package it in a way that one speaks to um, a lot of experiences that people uh, have also had. And then two also creates environments and references that that potentially help them sort of process it um, as well. I actually had somebody reach out to me like, "Oh, this is a whole new um, genre," you know, and that that felt you know good in the context of that. Like, I want to encourage people and inspire them to like create art that doesn't have bounds, you know. Like, I had thought about trying to get somebody else to publish that, and you know, maybe maybe I did myself a disservice, but I was just like, I don't see anybody publishing this it's not going to go within the realms of what we expect or think poetry to be so I can go on and on about what I learned and what I'm still learning about having you know written that because I'm sure as you know there's the process of writing it and what you learn there's a process of it being just out and what you learn too and like I haven't I haven't read the whole thing since I published it I kind of don't have a desire to to be honest um but you still court to keep learning I think once you're once your art is out there and you know, that's one of the things I've I've learned the most, you know, in that process. I don't know yeah. if that answers your question, but <laughs> oh, it's your question. <laughs> appreciate uh, I appreciate you throwing it back at me. That's good. That's good. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, well, actually, no. Let's stay on the sort of topic of the of the South. If the Midwest is the heartland of the country, the South is what. That's a really, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I would say, and just the soul of the country. Mm. I think the reason I say that is because to me, at least the South holds so much of the most, be- like what makes this country so beautiful, what makes people so beautiful, but also what makes this country so terrifying and, and what makes people and the world we're living in so terrifying. And I think to me, that's what a soul is really all about. Like it, it holds the truth, you know? And I think that that's to me what the South really holds. And to make progress as a body, you have to dive deep in, into it, the soul. You know, I think you got to understand it. You got to learn about it. You got to be in it. You got to, you know, you got to unpack so much of 
deep, deep historical, you know, things that make it what it is, you know, so it's so tied with, with the legacy of, of everything around it and, and every, mm-hmm. everyone that's been through it. Um, that, yeah, that to me, that is really uh, what I think the South is, is really all about. And without it, we, we don't have, we don't have much and, yeah. um, and it will exist long before, you know, whatever the physical nature of the South ceases to exist or continues to exist or what have you. Um, and it's, it's, it's deeply connected with the spiritual, with the, with the heavens, whatever, mm-hmm. however you so choose to define that. Um, and, in, and it can exist far outside the physical boundaries of, of the American South. You know, I think that that soul can be, can be in a lot of places. I've seen it in a lot of places. Um, and so I don't know, I think maybe that's how I'd answer that question. I don't know if you have any opinions or, or takes yeah on it yeah too. no i i would agree um i think there's a i mean you know me I've, I've got an incredible fondness appreciation love for the south i think every not every but most movements you see here even once you include sort of you know um native americans and and sort of their their push for some recognition some restitution for all the atrocities america has done to them as well like you know when you mention spirituality i think about that as well not just so much like christian faith and black liberation but also like the land there still being sacred um even though people were unjustly pushed away from there um so i I would absolutely agree with the south being the the soul um of, of of the country um Couple more questions here before we close out. Um, shifting a little bit back to electoral politics, I was watching the because um, I'm weird. I do this. I was watching the second night of the 1980 Republican National Convention. <laughs> Don't ask me why I was watching that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was watching Barry Goldwater uh, give give a speech. Goldwater published, I think, the Conscience of a Conservative in 1960. Um, Reagan gave his famous sort of political launching speech, A Time for Choosing in 1960. I've long argued that the Democrats need a Ronald Reagan and they need a Lee Atwater, um, someone who comes and sort of redefines what it means to, what, it, what, what we mean as a country and who can easily communicate that uh, in a way as succinct and clear as him, regardless of whether arguments hold up to logical fallacies, right? The guy was an amazing politician. Um, but what Goldwater sort of drew out from that speech, the thing that sticks with me is towards the end talks about sort of party unity and how, you know, Republicans aren't perfect. Our party isn't perfect, but it's my party. I support it. Um, that's one of the things I've long struggled with when it comes to Democrats is this, this just this unnecessary, unrealistic purity test. Um, and I think a part of that, honestly, is why we struggled to win elections so much, uh, unfortunately. What's your advice? Somebody who's worked in democratic politics, who has the context uh, of organizing and movement building that, that you do. What's your advice to those who think democratic candidates need to be perfect? <laughs> yeah, I think that's really, it's quite real. And I, I definitely agree. And you, you and I have talked about this and I know you've talked about it on the podcast before as well, just that this purity standard is incredibly harmful to like focusing on the larger goal and focusing about where we're trying to get to. And that in that process, there's going to be an incredible amount of imperfection and missteps. Um, but if we're not pushing and we're not moving forward, then that game, that ground is being gained elsewhere by other folks who have even more um, harmful um, ideologies and things that they're trying to push on to, to folks whose lives are deeply impacted by that in the interim, you know, and while we're debating purity, while we're debating this and that as political strategists, as activists, as organizers, um, all of our lives and are being impacted on a very real way on a very everyday basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think though, that it's always valuable to be having that conversation as long as the work is being done. Mm-hmm. And I think too often we get lost in that conversation and we feel that if we spend about two hours bantering back and forth, uh, whether it's on social media or whether it's just with your friend that you've kind of checked your political, uh, you know, checkbox for the day you've engaged. Right. And if you're not doing the real work, if you're not involved and engaged in your local community and, and in the con- and the causes and the context that you care, it's not going to do you any good to be coming to your own conclusion, whatever it is about, you know, the, the certain standards of a candidate or, um, or what have you. Um, but I also, yeah, I think that in terms of where the Democratic Party 
needs to go as well. I think that if the Democratic Party wants to continue to say that it's this party of the working class, of single moms, of immigrant families, and put out all these real nice ads, you know, every <laughs> couple of years that really hype it up and, and uh, you know, and then run candidates that aren't that, mm-hmm. you know, then you also deserve to be incredibly criticized and disengaged with and, and people getting frustrated and not being and not showing up. Um, and that that's what you're going to get if you keep acting the way that the party has acted for you know, pretty much since it's been around. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, while I do think on an individual, on an organizer level, you know, focusing on the work, making sure you're doing the work and holding those dialogues at the same time is important. I think that the party needs to finally, at some point, put its money where its mouth is and mm-hmm. actually support the candidates that it claims as a party to support. And without that, I think that it's going to continue to hemorrhage votes and hemorrhage support because people, I do think, are justified in holding the party to that purity standard if it's going to continue to claim that it is that standard and that it's doing work in the name of that standard when it clearly is not in terms of an establishment level. Um, It's not putting its money there and it's not putting its resources um, with those communities, with those candidates. that obviously we have so many examples of in 2020 and 2018 and 2016 and long before that. So I don't know. I think, I think it's obviously a complicated topic that I don't feel remotely um, qualified to, to fully address or answer, but that's, I would say more or less my two cents on it. Um, And for everyone, you know, having those critiques and and running things by the purity test, keep doing that, Mm -hmm. keep running, you know, keep, keep that movement, keep that activism rooted in an ideal, um, in, in everything that we want to accomplish, but don't let that get in the way of us doing the work, you know, that we need to do to get there, you know, because mm-hmm. they're not just going to wake up that way. Um, and, and a lot of that stuff won't even be accomplished in certainly any near future um, without, you know, a, a really obviously a credible amount of work that needs to get done in, in, in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the work, what's next in your organizing journey? Yeah, so I, I think for me, um, I'll, I will be leaving the side of electoral organizing probably for a little bit. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll come back. Yeah. I know, I know Stacy. Hopefully, will be on the ballot in a couple of years. So, uh, so. Yeah, I'll be privileged to work for her. But um, for me, I, I'm going to be teaching uh, soon. We mm. go back to education. Like I said, that's kind of where I came. My roots come from, um, and I'm excited just to be in the classroom um, in a sustainable form of organizing. Uh, mm. I think. And I don't mean that in the sense, oh, the work is as an organizer is not sustainable. The hours are too long. I don't mean it that way. I mean, uh, embedding yourself in a way that allows the structures in play, allow you to be in a place and and sustainably part of a community um, and connected in that way. Uh, So I'm I'm looking forward to to teaching, being in the classroom. Um, I'm working um, right now, too, with an organization that we're developing uh, some curriculum for social change. Um, Essentially, it's helping create content um, for educators um, to share, you know, hard hitting topics um, and honest topics that rarely get touched on in kind of the, our traditional uh, public school curriculums, but finding ways to incorporate that into, you know, the structures that, that all public school teachers that we all have to, you know, play with and, and, and play to. Um, but um, so, yeah, I think that for me, again, like having so much of my own experience rooted in my educational journey of, of the learning and the unlearning, more specifically that had to be done and continues to be done. Um, that's just kind of a space that with, when it comes to my organizing that I feel like I want to be rooted in. Um, and, and then obviously we'll just continue to find um, as many communities and as many causes and work that I get asked to join um, and asked to, to put my work towards, you know, I think that I, as long as I'm positioning myself that I'm clearly available to help and, and do work, and that's that's where I kind of want to be. So I'll just uh, wherever needs me. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we appreciate it. And if I'm ever able to get uh, any portion of the band back together, uh, you'll be the first call. Um, <laughs> let's close with a rapid fire. Uh, favorite place you've traveled? Um, it's always a tough question. I think <laughs> every place is different. But 
uh, favorite like recent place that I was in, I was in Cuba, which I just mm. felt like I was just learning an incredible amount and just absorbing the world in a way that I otherwise never would have really been able to see. So that, I don't know if I, yeah, that, that would be a quick answer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no worries. Um, hot or iced coffee? Hot. Yeah. I don't understand how people do iced coffee. No offense to you. Yeah, my partner people. does iced coffee and I do. <laughs> not, not my thing. <laughs> um, favorite book? Oh. <laughs> you can do a top three. Um, okay, okay. One of my favorite, I, I really like uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. Ken Kesey, um, great. Just commentary about power. Um, recently, uh, a couple books I've read that I keep hyping up to all my friends and family. Uh, N.K. Jemisin, um, the Broken Earth trilogy. It's a fantasy trilogy. If you don't read fantasy, no, I, I, I feel you, but just give these a try. This, this woman just builds worlds in a way that is so incredible and has so many uh, ties of, of social, social justice, social work in, in there as well. And it's just an incredibly enjoyable read too. If you're looking for just an, an awesome read. Um, and then what else have I read recently that I really liked? Um, I read a, a book called uh, Minor Characters that I, I would recommend too. Uh, it's uh, a memoir of Joyce Johnson in, in the time of the beat era, the 1950s. She's a white woman and just uh, was kind of around Jack Kerouac. And I think that the, the book kind of on the road has gotten quite a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people read that. A lot of people think about like these kind of the, the Jack Kerouac kind of character in that, yeah. that time period. And just interesting to hear her perspective on the same time period being around the same people um but again the book's called minor characters so pretty aptly named there but i don't know what, what would you say your favorite like book is right now oh right now um whoo -hoo, that's a good question i just started a book called the age of soccer which pretty much is just uh, a historical encyclopedia on football um which is you know always something i'm interested in big i mean you know big football fan um real football the one where we actually use your feet people, people <laughs> who are listening to this by the way um and then my favorite book is their eyes were watching god i actually read it once a year um <clears throat> zora no hurston is my you know favorite author writer if you read my poetry book you know this so yeah i'd say i'd say those two um any other rapid fire sorry yeah no no one uh when it's safe to do so again where are you going where are you traveling next oh um i really want to get to new zealand never been there before i just feel like physically it's a beautiful place that i would love to go check out yeah well that's a very long flight very expensive flight so that one's not gonna be happening in a long time but <laughs> it's on the list yeah <laughs> something to build towards Oliver, I appreciate you, man. Appreciate you, Fred. Thanks so much for, for everything and for putting out all this amazing content and for being an instrumental part of, uh, of my life, man. So always, always a huge thanks and appreciate you for that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Politics is usual.